Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Lights, Camera, Sports podcast presented by Chestnut Hill Technologies. I'm your host, Mike Galtieri. Well, right in the heart of March Madness, I thought it'd be great to invite uh, the legendary CBS sportscaster, Boston Globe sports writer alum, and BC alum, Leslie Visser, to the podcast this week. It was a very exciting podcast. We talked about her career, uh, the challenges she's faced, her new book she just released, um, and, you know, just her whole career as a sportscaster and sports writer. So I, I think you really, really, really uh, will enjoy this podcast. Also find out one of her jobs she had uh, while she was a student at Boston College. It was pretty funny. like to remind everybody, uh, if you're a BC alum, just check out the BC Football Gridiron Club. Go to bcfootballgridiron.com to sign up and get more details. All right, let's first hear from Chestnut Hill Technologies and Stone Love and Pizza. Then we'll go into the podcast with Leslie Visser. As always, thank you so much for listening. Chestnut Hill Technologies is a leading technology integration and cybersecurity consulting firm based in the Boston area and owned by BC alum. CHT provides world-class strategy and consulting to Fortune 500 and mid-cap firms throughout New England and nationally, including State Street Bank, Amaj Pharma, and Intel Corporation. Check them out at chestnuthilltechnologies.com. That's chestnuthilltechnologies.com. At Stone Love and Pizza, their mission is simple, to offer the most creative selection of hand-tossed, all-natural pizza in the Neapolitan tradition. Their pizzas are cooked in a stone-fired brick oven directly on the stone to lock in the flavor. Stone Love and Pizza uses all-natural products. In other words, their dough, sauce, and cheese contain no additives, preservatives, or weird chemicals of any kind. Come visit one of Stone Lovin's three locations, including the newest location at 1649 Beacon Street in Newton. Go Eagles! Hello, everybody, and welcome back once again to another Lights, Camera, Sports podcast presented by Chestnut Hill Technologies. Well, right in March Madness and the big sports scene, we are lucky enough to have a BC alum and a very famous BC alum to boot as well. It's quite an honor to welcome Leslie Visser to the podcast here. Graduate of Boston College, you know her from every sport, Boston Globe sports writer, uh, CBS Sports, ABC Sports. Uh, it's the longest introduction I could possibly give. I keep on going. Pete Rosell Award winner, 2006. A first member, a female member of the Hall of Fame in the NFL in Canton, Ohio. Leslie, I, like I said, I could just keep on going. But thank you so much for joining us here on the podcast. You know what, Mike? The greatest thing is that you, of course, were a spotter for Jim Nance, the great Jim Nance. By the way, I always say my career, you're too young for this, but your grandfather will get it. My career went from Jim Nance, he was a former Boston Patriot, N-A-N-C-E. My career went from Jim Nance to Jim Nance. <laughs> That's kind of how my career has gone. But as you know, you were a spotter for Jim Nance, but you weren't the most famous spotter. Do you know who the most famous spotter for Jim Nance was? Tommy Spencer? <laughs> no. uh, fabulous. I love Tommy Spencer. No, that would be Freddie Couples. Wow, his roommate, his college roommate in Houston. His college roommate. He had him one year at the Final Four. And poor Freddie Couples was like cross-eyed. He was cross-eyed trying to do it. That must have been, that's right before the Masters as well. So he was probably gearing up for a big week. <laughs> probably so. 
That's great. Well, Leslie, thank you so much. I like to profile our guests before uh, we get going here. You know, I just I grabbed your book, by the way. Sometimes you have to cross when it says don't walk. A great memoir. But we'll get into that in a second. But I learned, too, I always thought you grew up in Quincy your entire life, Quincy, Mass. But you actually did move around quite a bit. Your parents moved around. Uh, your father's from Europe. Uh, your mom from Western Mass. Just talk about your early childhood and your love of sports. Yeah, a lot of people think, you know, sort of that I grew up with uh, Sean McDonough down in Hingham, but that wasn't true. Uh, we did live in Hingham. I was born in Quincy, and then my dad was born in Amsterdam, and uh, he was born, he was not Jewish, but he was born under the Nazi occupation. He lived there, you know, they were there from 40 to 45, and, uh, you know, it was it was quite a time. I mean, I have to say my dad who's passed away really gave me a world view because, you know, he really, people here just don't know what that's like to grow up where you, you can't, you're afraid of who you speak to or what you say or, I mean, and he went to Montessori school with Anne Frank. I mean, nobody had money. Everybody hid their Jewish neighbors. Uh, my mom was from Western Mass, uh, very kind of a poor Irish family, but, you know, lots of kids, lots of, uh, uh, lots of people. And we moved around a lot because my dad worked for the Stanford Research Institute, SRI. And so we moved and we, we moved to Ohio and Maryland and Sweden and, um, of course, Palo Alto. We moved around quite, quite a bit, but, um, I went to high school in South Hadley, uh, out in Western Mass, right next to Amherst. And um, I wanted a school. I wasn't going to get into Stanford, and I, even with his help. And I wanted a school that had big-time sports, and I was a Red Sox ever since I was born in Massachusetts. I was a Red Sox fanatic. By the way, did we beat the Cubs? What's that? Today. Today, did we beat the Cubs? Oh, I, I don't even checked yet. I don't know. <laughs> no, I don't think we did. It was spring training. It was still spring training. But uh, anyway, I was... I was a Red Sox, really. I was crazy for the Red Sox. And so going to Boston College, you know, I mean, how great is that? You're six miles from Fenway Park. Yeah, you know, that was interesting. I thought it was really cool how you said you go with, with your brother, 11 cents or 10 cents to Fenway. Um, and I have to imagine that era, the Red Sox weren't like that popular back then. And just talk about how it was for you growing up, going to Fenway, probably in the minority as a female and just watching the Red Sox. It must have been a pretty cool experience. Uh, uh, both, both. Um, yes, my brother and I would go, and if we spent too much on Fenway Franks, we would have to walk home to Quincy or Hingham. <laughs> Let's go to walk. walk. I mean, that was a long walk. <laughs> but, um, you know what's interesting that I've found in, in 40 years now of covering sports is that um, the Red Sox and the St. Louis Cardinals are two teams that women will go to. You know, they'll just get, like, a group of college girls or maybe older women or, you know, where you just, you don't see that at NFL games. You know, women go with their husband, their brother, their son, you know, their uncle. But you will see Red Sox and uh, St. Louis Cardinals also. You will see that women, groups of women go. That's interesting. You know, maybe because it's, you know, there's uh, 81 games, it's, Less to, more of a social event, slower pace, maybe. But you're right. NFL games are more, you know, eight games a year, a big event. So hey, before we go on, let's stop and really give praise, thanks, 
all glory to Bob Kraft for sending that plane to Parkland, Florida, to take those kids to Washington. Yes. Yeah, that, that's, yes. that was a very nice gesture on his part. And totally, you know, he doesn't live there. Look, I live in Miami, Parkland. Actually, the commissioner of, of Parkland, uh, Grace Solomon, is a very good friend of mine. And, uh, you know, I do stuff up in Parkland. And uh, I, don't, I don't see nobody. Anthony Rizzo from the Cubs is yes. from there. Wow. Um, yeah, but it's not, it's nowhere near. It's nowhere near Bob Kraft, where he has a place up in Palm Beach and, of course, you know, lives in Boston. It's nowhere near. He just did that really, really out of the kindness and that he recognized that these young people, that this is a movement. It's a movement. And he sent that plane to Parkland, and I said, yep, that's why I love Bob Kraft, Robert Kraft. And I want to get to that in a second, too. I, and I, it's a great segue. It goes back to your book, uh, the title of your book, Leslie. Sometimes you have to cross when it says don't walk. And your mother said that to you when you were 11 years old. Can you give our listeners just the whole story behind that and the situation and talking about your career aspirations? Yeah, sure. Thank you. Available on Amazon. Um, <laughs> uh, yes, my mother, um, as I said, we, my family moved quite a bit. And we lived a little north of Cincinnati. It's a place called Wyoming, Ohio. And my mother and I were walking around, and she, she was a teacher. This was the early 1960s when women, I don't know what your mother or grandmother did, but probably there were three things, right? There were teachers, nurses, homemakers, maybe domestics. Yes, teacher. Um, yep, you're right. Teachers, right? Yep. And uh, my mother said, what do you want to do? And I said, you know what? I want to be a sports writer, you know, which was like saying I want to go to the moon. I mean, what are you kidding? What do you want to be a sports writer? But I'm sure you did too, Mike. You know, as a kid, we all read Street and Smith and the Sporting News. And I just said, wow, I really, I, I knew I knew how to write even at 10. And uh, I said, I want to be a sports writer. And my mother said to me, that's great. Sometimes you have to cross when it says don't walk. And that's exactly what you did. You, you know, you went to Boston College and you joined the, uh, to talk about the time with the Heights, with Mike Lupica, Bob Ryan, and your experience there. Just give us your first, you know, what was it like your first couple of years at BC in the Heights? Coming to, like you said, a big time sports environment uh, in the Northeast. Yeah, it was, um, you know, it was really strange for me. You don't know this, Mike, or maybe now you do, but people you meet in college, you know, you know, you're going to know your roommates. I had fabulous roommates. We're all still really close. Um, you know, and a couple other people, but a lot of the other people, you don't know them. You don't see them. But I mean, there I was with Mike Lupica <laughs> and Lenny DeLuca, you know, these people yes. that were going to be in my life for the next 50 years. So, and actually John Mary, you know, the guy who owns the Giants. Yes. His yes. father at the time, Wellington owned them. But John lived with Mike. They lived two doors down in the mods. And, uh, yeah, I thought, I thought BC was a blast. Um, you know, our, our football team was good, but it's really hard to get national recognition if you're in a pro town. The only ones I've ever seen in my 40 years of covering sports, uh, the only ones I've ever seen are USC. Remember, I had the great Marcus Allen. Well, they had a million great players. Uh, USC, when John Robinson was the coach, and then down here, Miami, Schnellenberger started it, and they had lots of different coaches, but they got it done. They had Jimmy Johnson, 
They had uh, Erickson, you know, they, but they won national championships. But it's very hard when you're in a pro town and people can go to the Patriots or the Red Sox or the Celtics or the Bruins. It's really hard for you to have a college team that stands out. No question about it. I remember my senior year at BC, we had Matt Ryan, we were number two in the nation in October, but the Red Sox were in the World Series that year. <laughs> yeah, remember the same thing. So, <laughs> I remember I covered Matt Ryan's NFC Championship uh, yeah. against the 49ers, against Kaepernick. Yes. Yeah. And I, uh, before the game, I was out there talking to Matt Ryan, and I said, Matt, what is the most important thing about this game? And Matt said, oh, God, I, you know, I got to read those defenders. I got to read the 49ers uh, cornerbacks and, and their safeties. I said, no, it's applications for Boston College. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, he's done really well, too. Looking out 10 years in the career, it's unbelievable. We'll see where he is. Uh, But also, a fun note, I saw you worked in Marianne's for a little bit, huh, in Cleveland Circle during your BC time. Oh, my God, that was so horrible. My mother said, my mother, okay, Catholic high school, Catholic college, virgin when she married. My mother said, boy, I'd love to come down and see where you work. I said, I, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> you know, she said, well, isn't it like a cocktail lounge? I said, yeah, well, sort of. <laughs> Your feet were sticking oh, to the floor. Me, um, one week I was a bartender, and then I was so terrible because all the girls from, like, the junior colleges would come to try to meet the guys from B.C., and so they would order, like, really complicated drinks, you know, Tequila Sunrise, Kahlua Sombrero. I'd be like, you know, here's a draft on tap. And, you know, they'd leave you a quarter. So anyway, I lasted a week and I went back to waitressing. But I waitressed there for like two or three years. Wow, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. That's a good... No, no, the big song, do you even remember this? Go look it up sometime. The big song was Angie. Was that the Rolling Stones? (laughs) Not sure. Smoke on the Water. That was the other song. That was. They the... would play it over and over and over in the jukebox. <laughs> in Cleveland Circle. Um, Cleveland. So that's great, though. You and then as you progress, I thought it was very interesting. I didn't know this about you applied for a Carnegie Foundation grant and you got it for sports writing, Leslie. Just explain to our listeners that whole process and how it, it basically led to you working at the Boston Globe in the mid seventies. Oh, it was unbelievable. Uh, the Carnegie, uh, people don't know this, but Andrew Carnegie, of course, from, from uh, Pittsburgh, um, you know, Carnegie Mellon, Carnegie Hall, you know, you, you, you don't think of how often you know Carnegie, but he was the greatest philanthropist in the United States at the time. I mean, since, Bill, you know, way before Bill Gates, or, but at the time he was. I think he, I think he built like 1,100 libraries or something. And so he had this grant, uh, well, he was deceased, but his corporation had this grant for uh, women who wanted to go into jobs that were 95% male, which I know you find this hard to believe, but in the early 1970s, all jobs were 95% male, white male. So uh, I applied for one. And we kept having these series of interviews. We'd go to Pittsburgh, and then we'd go to New York. And then they gave out 20 of them. And I think a woman from Michigan got it for archaeology, a woman from Radcliffe. It was in Radcliffe before they'd merged with Harvard. And she got it for ophthalmology. And I got it for sports writing. 
I mean, it was just, I'm sure, so strange. But um, so what the deal was, was uh, the Carnegie Corporation would pay the stipend and you could work wherever you wanted. Well, then and now, the Boston Globe is the best sports section in America. So I said, well, gosh, I'm going to go to the Globe. So it was kind of funny because when I went to the Globe, you know, I, I worked there for 10 years, and they would send me to everything. Uh, they would send me to Wimbledon. I wouldn't be the lead writer, but like at the World Series, it would be Peter Gammons and me. At the NBA Finals, it would be Bob Ryan and me. Uh, at Wimbledon, it would be Bud Collins and me. So I had such a fantastic experience, so, so much so that when CBS came to hire me, I said, why would I leave the Globe? Yeah, wow, <laughs> wow. They said, are you kidding? There are only 20 of these jobs in America. We're a country of 300 million. Yeah, that's, you know, that's, yeah, it is amazing. That was, that was a different time, though, back then. You're right. The Boston Globe, you mentioned all those. What was it like just day in and day out? Bob Ryan, Dan Shaughnessy, Lee Montville, uh, Bud Collins, all those people. It just, uh, Will McDonough. What was that like just in the office, I guess, in the newsroom? Oh, it was ridiculous. It was, um, I, I mean, I always say this, and they know it, that Will Vaughn and Kornheiser, the original PTI, was Gammon's and Ryan every day in the office. They started the same day in 1968. I got there in like 73, 74. But every single day, they exactly what PTI is, uh, Will Vaughn and Kornheiser, that's exactly what they did every day. And then we couldn't wait till Will McDonough went home and then we would all dive under his desk for his Rolodex. Because, I mean, we had Pete Rozelle's home number, Al Davis's home number. Yeah, so, I mean, it was staggering. I mean, I would go to Wimbledon and I would say, Hi, I'm Leslie Visser from the Boston Globe. I work with Bud Collins. And people, I mean, I'm not kidding. People like Bjorn Borg would say, Really? What do you need? Wow. Wow, that, that's that's amazing. And then eventually, too, you became the NFL's first female NFL beat writer with the Boston Globe and the New England Patriots. Just talk about that experience, and I thought that was interesting. You mentioned a lot in your book about what you had to deal with standing outside the locker room to get interviews and, and all that. I don't know if people realize right now, uh, this day and age, especially people my age or younger, what you had to go through just to get interviews. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of glad maybe everybody doesn't have to know about that because that shows how far we've come but yes in the early 1970s there were no provisions for equality and uh yeah i'd have to stand out in the parking lot and uh john madden always described it as a two-way go that like i would have to stand out there and then here would come terry bradshaw and here would come steve grogan because they'd be going to their car to go home and i'd have to make a choice you know, maybe the maybe the Steelers won the game, but maybe the Patriot, maybe the Globe readers want to read what Steve Grogan thought. So it was like I would have to make these split decisions. I, I think the good thing for me was I had to do it all myself. Like there are many, 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 you've been in many locker rooms. There are many young reporters. All they do is stick the mic in. They don't even make eye contact. They don't ask the question. They just wait to hear what the athlete says. And I do think in, in that way it was good for me. I had to ask all the questions. I had to look them in the eye. I had to write it down. But, yes, the, um, the locker rooms were not open. My first seven years of covering the NFL, they were not open. I don't think they were open until the early 80s. 
Wow, that's amazing. And then you also did mention, going back to Robert Kraft, you had a really good experience with, I know, him and George Blaney in the early days, Holy Cross and the Boston Lobsters, which uh, Robert Kraft owned. Just talk about how that kind of helped you out a little bit in the early days. Yeah, people didn't know. Everyone says, I say, you know, I, I love, I don't like Robert Kraft. I love Robert Kraft. And everyone says, well, of course, you've covered the Patriots for a thousand years. I say, no, you have no idea. I go back to when his lobsters, which I think Bud Collins created, a lob, like a lob, a tennis lob, the lobsters. Okay. <laughs> when I think he created it when they played at Walter Brown Arena and Bob Kraft, Robert Kraft owned the team. And, I mean, really, there'd be a thousand of us. I, I also covered, I was Rick Pitino's beat writer, so I spent a lot of time in Walter Brown Arena. Uh, and, uh, you know, Rick had maybe 800 people there. The Lobster said maybe a thousand, you know. But it was, uh, you know, it was kind of a blast. I mean, it was uh, Martina had, she had defected, although she didn't become a citizen, I don't think, until the 80s. But, of course, she defected in 75. And Robert Kraft signed her with the Lobsters, and uh, you know Roy Emerson. I mean, it was great. And Jan Tyriak would come to town. You know, it was um, it was uh, it was a great learning learning experience for me. Both that from Robert Kraft, and he was great to me. And so was Myra, his late wife. She was she said, "Let her in the locker room. Who cares?" She was great. And um, uh, Rick Pitino. You know, I've I've known. I actually the man I'm married to now, um, Bob Knuth. He was a captain of Harvard basketball, and I met him through Rick Pitino. So I stayed close to both those gentlemen for, what, 45 years. Wow, that's, that is amazing, too. Uh, Leslie, I'd like to go now to your time. I'm interested, how did you, you know, you talk about writing the Boston Globe. How did you transition or even approach the idea of transitioning at that time in the early 80s to TV and CBS sports? I would think that's even, you know, more of a trailblazer. You didn't see many female reporters at that time on TV for the sports side. How did that all, that process all come about, I guess? Chestnut Hill Technologies is a leading technology integration and cybersecurity consulting firm based in the Boston area and owned by a BC alum. CHT provides world-class strategy and consulting to Fortune 500 and mid-cap firms throughout New England and nationally, including State Street Bank, Amaj Pharma, and Intel Corporation. Check them out at chestnuthilltechnologies.com. That's chestnuthilltechnologies.com. At Stone Love and Pizza, their mission is simple, to offer the most creative selection of hand-tossed, all-natural pizza in the Neapolitan tradition. Their pizzas are cooked in a stone-fired brick oven directly on the stone to lock in the flavor. Stone Love and Pizza uses all-natural products. In other words, their dough, sauce, and cheese contain no additives, preservatives, or weird chemicals of any kind. Come visit one of Stone Lovin's three locations, including the newest location at 1649 Beacon Street in Newton. Go Eagles! I, I still don't know that there are any former writers who are on network television, you know, who do live games. I mean, they do tape shows and you know, they do some talk shows. But, yeah, it was. I still don't know. I, I really, after, after 40 years, I can't tell you that there's one woman I know that went from being a writer to being on games, you know, or yeah, you were yeah. live and they threw it to you. It was an enormous transition. Um, the two I had before me, or they kind of were with me, were Bud and Will McDonough. We were like the three writers that went from um, uh, 
paper to network television. I mean, there are, you know, there are lots of, there are lots of locals and lots of, and ESPN was in its infancy. Even ESPN didn't crown a champion until very recently. So most of the, even the women on there, they were um, on talk shows, you know, tape talk shows. But, you know, when you're on live, uh, I'm still the only woman who ever presented the Lombardi trophy to the Super Bowl winner. And that goes around, I think, to 150 million people around the world. I mean, it's, it's very, you know what I did? I said to myself, instead of typing on deadline, I'm going to talk on deadline. That's yeah. how I got through it. That's interesting. It's a, it's a very different animal. It's a very different animal. You have, I mean, you have many, many more people. You know, when you go out as a writer, you go out, you get your notes, you come back, you write your story, and you send it in. Uh, when you do something, like, you know, when you look, and like for March Madness, you'll see CBS, well, this year it's TBS, but normally CBS is the network of the Final Four, and then you'll see hundreds of people covering the game, but they aren't, you know, the network of record. So it's a very different animal. I mean, you have big production meetings, things are timed to the second. You know, um, people don't know this, but like when you're on live TV and, you know, when Al Michaels would throw it to me on Monday Night Football, now he throws it, she's fabulous, Michelle Tafoya. She never talks into the play. Like, maybe something people don't notice, but, like, you never talk over the play. So, uh, it, there, there's so many, it's very, uh, network television is very difficult. And you mentioned it during your, in your book that covering sports, CBS, that was kind of your passport to the world. And one of those great assignments you had was, you know, uh, not so much on the sports side, but covering the collapse of the Berlin Wall in the late 80s. Just kind of tell our listeners that whole sequence and what that experience was like out in uh, East and West Germany. Yeah, that was really, really profound for me. You know, um, a lot of people don't know that people who cover sports really can cover everything. Both Dan Rather, Walter Cronkite, they were all sports writers. Um, you know, it, uh, CBS sent me to cover the fall of the Berlin Wall. I just had a little slice of it, but I didn't care. I mean, it was there. It was in October of 89. And what had happened was... Um, People were escaping through East Germany, even though, you know, they had that death strip that was 100 yards between, they actually built two walls, like an inner and an outer wall, and people would get shot. If you go to the museum in um, Washington on Pennsylvania Avenue, they have the four remaining panels of the Berlin Wall, but people would get shot there, but they started escaping out the back, and they would go through Hungary to Liberty in Austria. So they were all, I mean, they were just pouring out of East Germany to Hungary, to Austria. So they finally said, well, maybe we better ease restrictions, they called it. So then all of a sudden, you know, it was just all the kids got up on the wall and the music and the wall came down. And I had gone through Checkpoint Charlie to interview Katerina Witt and uh, I brought home chips for everybody, you know, little parts of the wall for everybody for Christmas. Yeah, yeah, wow. That, that, must, that must have been an amazing story for you. And then you transitioned to ABC Sports, and I thought it was very interesting. In your book, you talked about all the great accomplishments at ABC, but you also touched, and I, what I thought was interesting, how you, you lost your position on Monday Night Football to Melissa Stark, and how you were able to overcome that adversity. Uh, first of all, you were the first female reporter on Monday Night Football. did that for many years very successfully, and then you, you transitioned after that point. Yeah, you know what they did? They brought in a new producer, and it's just like kind of what happened just to Sean 
similar to, to a lot of people in TV. You know, you bring in a new producer, they want their own people. And, uh, yeah, I was really crushed because I loved Al Michaels and Frank Gifford and Dan Deardorff. Those the guys that worked all legends. I had a blast. And I, I, I was really crushed, but um, it was kind of funny. Uh, Marv Albert's wife, Heather, good friend of mine, and Kelly Naki from ESPN, they said, hey, just get out of here. We're going to Paris. You know, come with us. And I couldn't get on their flight, so I went on the next flight, and the CEO of CBS, the great Les Moonves, he was on that flight. He said, ah, forget it, because they said, they said I could work for Peter Jennings or do some other things. And um, he said, forget it. Just come back to CBS. So I did. I've been back at CBS now for like 18 years. It was great. That, that is amazing, you know. Um, and then you, at CBS now, you've been you covered everything: figure skating, tennis, horse racing. Is there a sport you look back on right now that you say I would I would really want to focus on if I could choose one? Um, mine's more personal. I wish that I had had the courage to run the Boston Marathon. I, I used to run five or six miles a day, really, up until I was in my fifties. And, you know, if you can run that far, you can train to the Boston Marathon. But I made it so iconic in my head, you know, like, oh, my God, the Boston Marathon. Um, I made it too big. But I did throw out a first pitch uh, for the Red Sox. (laughs) (laughs) They went okay. You know why? Because Louis Tion told me everybody throws it hard and down. He said, don't do that. Just throw it high and let gravity take it down. And it was perfect. There you go. That's pretty good right there. <laughs> it was really good. That's pretty good. Well, Leslie, last couple minutes, like to just, if you could, give it two or three sentences of the following people we named. Does that sound okay? Sure. Just maybe a story or two. What do you, Brent Musburger. Oh, Brent is, um, now there's a guy who went from print. He started as a sports writer yes, in that, Chicago. That famous shot at the pool in Super Bowl three, right, with um, Jim he, Namath. He was there. Joe Namath, yeah. Uh, although Joe Namath had actually declared it the night before at, like, a banquet, but then he reiterated it, yes, at that pool, that Joe Namath guaranteed we will win Super Bowl three, And Brent was there. Brent now runs a, um information quote service in uh, Las Vegas, and Brent never left you hanging. He always was um, he was always on your side, which, you know, sometimes sports writers and sports casters, um, but he always was on your side. What about Al Michaels? Oh, Al's hysterical. Al is the best that I've ever worked with. Al and John Madden, they, um, they just, they really, nothing passes them. I'll, I'll tell you an Al Michaels story that he will not deny. Um, we did the World Series, what, uh, was it 91, maybe? Um, Atlanta, Cleveland, I'm not sure what year that was. And I got in the car, the limousine afterwards, and Al, of course, had his Johnny Walker, what's the highest Johnny Walker, blue or something? I don't know, <laughs> yeah. Some black. Black, Never yeah. <laughs> and I, I got in the car, I was nervous. It was Tim McCarver, Al, and myself. And I got in the limousine and I said, wow, Greg Maddox really had great stuff. And Al said to me, Leslie, 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 after a game, we don't talk baseball. We rip people. <laughs> <laughs> he did. He won't deny it either if you ever meet him. <laughs> I'm going to bring that one up. And then uh, to round up the broadcasting, Jim Nance, you worked with the CBS. Oh, the nicest man in sports. Well, he and Vern Lundquist might be a toss-up. Oh, and maybe Bill Raftery. Oh, gosh. They're all CBS. 
you know, CBS, we don't hire jerks. We really don't. <laughs> we hire Raftery and Byrne and, oh, my God, James Brown, who was the captain of Harvard basketball after my husband. A JB is perfect. Jim Nance is, I'll tell you, I'll tell you this about Jim Nance. His house, he, he lives in a, one of his homes is overlooking Pebble Beach. Yes. The house is so big that one time he had a party, and I said, you know what, Jim? We should do a show that would be titled, How Long Do You Have to Be in Jim Nance's House Before He Even Realizes You're There? <laughs> Peb- Pebble Beach, too. Does he? I think he has a par three miniature hole in his backyard, too. Oh, oh it's ridiculous. One, one, one party I went to there, he must have had 400 people, and I, I don't think he even said hello to 300 of them. <laughs> hello, friends. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell him that. <laughs> That's funny. Um, and here's a good, interesting guy. I'm interested to get your thoughts on him. You go way back to BU with him, Kentucky Derby, Rick Pitino. Yeah, Rick Pitino, um, I just saw him yesterday. You know, he... he um, he really, I, I think he really got caught up. Like, you cannot watch your assistants 24 hours a day, 24-7. So one of his assistants, you know, got in with one of the sneaker companies. And I, I don't think Rick, you know, that that's not how Rick plays the game. And what was wonderful about being his beat writer at BU, this is 40 years ago, was that he could try things, right, because nobody went. So he could try a full-court press. And, of course, remember when he took Providence to the Final Four? Yes. The first person to really use the three-point shot. You know, he, he, was, uh, he was he's very innovative. Um, your players might beat him, but you're not going to out-coach him. Another New England coach who we cover up here is uh, Jim Calhoun, former UConn head coach. Yeah, I loved him. You know what I just had a debate with? Guess how many national titles he won? Uh, Jim Calhoun, three. People think too. He won three, and yeah. you know what I always say about Jim Calhoun. I mean, he's a tough guy. He's a tough guy from from Boston, right? He's a, a tough guy, and yep. I always I always loved him. And I always said, you know, that guy built a dynasty out of the desert. No question. Stores Connecticut. Yeah. Um, another college coach who was in your book. A good amount. Uh, rest in peace, Rick Majerus. Oh, and do you know the coach of Loyola was his assistant? Wow. I did not know that. Dedicating, yes, he's dedicating so many of these games. Matter of fact, all, uh, Rick grew up in Sheboygan, uh, which is just north of Milwaukee, and so many of the Loyola plays are, they're, they're all Rick. Everything's Rick. He'll tell you everything's Rick. Like one of them's called Elbow Milwaukee. Um, you know, Rick was somebody, he, he went in once, of course, he was Al McGuire's assistant, and he went in once and said, why does Allie McGuire, that... That, that was uh, Al's son. Why does Allie, why does that guy Allie play? I'm better than Allie. And the coach said, is your last name McGuire? <laughs> Brutally honest. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he was fat. Brilliant, brilliant. I mean, did, read the New York Times every day, living, you know, wherever he lived, Utah, St. Louis, wherever he lived. Um, very few coaches read the uh, New York Times front, front to back. And I always thought it was pretty cool with him. He he lived, correct me if I'm wrong, but he always lived like in a hotel his entire life, right? Like the Salt Lake City Marriott. Yeah, it was disgusting. And, you know, he always had like sneaker boxes and T-shirts. And I used to tease him that I think they put a rope around the maid and then they would pull the maid out. You know, she'd go in at noon 
<laughs> that's funny that's funny all right look two or three more here bill belichick what interesting to get your thoughts on him you know i get along great with him isn't it weird i went up wow. uh will mcdonough thank you will mcdonough will mcdonough in 1979 when belichick was an assistant to parcells said go over and introduce yourself to that guy because he is going to be big 1979 and i went over and i said how do you do? And um, my family had lived in Easton, Maryland, which is big lacrosse country right near Annapolis. Yes. Where, yep. you know, so he and I talk lacrosse. And, uh, I mean, last year he did a story with um, Joe Bellino. Bill and I did a story that he talked so long. Can you imagine this? The tape ran out. Wow. 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 That's... Yeah. No, no, I get along. I don't bother him much, you know, but I think he knows that I'm not, I'm, I'm going to ask, sincere and intelligent questions and um you know i i i don't bother him much and uh leslie your thoughts on former yankees manager who works in mlb now joe torrey yeah joe torrey i've had to really i work for him now for um he has a great charity called safe at home and i mean my main charity is i'm on the board of the v foundation jim valvano which i've been on for 20 years but i work for joe torrey that is safe at home and i remember one year was right when Johnny Damon had gone to the Yankees and we were in the red carpet line and I said, uh, it was at Joe Torrey's event, and I said, um, am I speaking to you, to Johnny Damon? And he said, well, Leslie, I did bring you a world championship. <laughs> I said, well, okay, there's that. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good, yeah. Um, yeah, people kill for Joe Torrey. He's the real deal. Uh and then you have a guy at Celtics way back, Red Auerbach. You mentioned him in your book as well. Yeah, well, I'm a real Sam Jones. I mean, I don't know if you saw him there. I dress up as uh, number 24, Sam Jones, Mr. Clutch, every Halloween. <laughs> there you go. I'm called, he does, and Sam calls me, begging me, please, no more, Leslie. I've been doing it since I was 10. You know, I've known him now since I was 20, but he begs me, please, Leslie. You mean, really, you're in your 60s. You know, enough. I say, nope, nope. <laughs> Dressed up every year as Sam Jones. But yeah, Red, Red Auerbach, um, you know, Red, it was interesting. Do you know Red didn't live in Boston? Remember, um, they all, do you know who the first Celtic was who lived in Boston? Who lived in the city of Boston? Yeah, no. they never did because, you know, Red lived in Washington all that time. Yeah, I knew Red lived in Washington, the Lennox Hotel in Boston, but no, I don't, wow. I think Paul Silas was the first one who moved his family. To, to Boston. That's interesting. So, um, how about the Celtics, huh? And, you know, two of our best friends are Mike Gorman and Terry Schindler. So wow. Really, we're really loving the Celtics right now. And Mike, doesn't he still live in New York City as well, commutes to the Celtics game? They live kind of halfway. Okay, gotcha. They live kind of halfway. But their daughter's getting married. She's going to leave us. She's going to live in Scottsdale. Oh, Kristen. So, <laughs> We love, uh, actually, last year, Mike Gorman and Terry and my husband and I, we all went to Norway together. So, wow. yeah, we're, we we follow the Celtics pretty closely. That's unbelievable. That's awesome. And then last but not least, for me here, Leslie, John Madden. I know you had a good story riding the Madden Cruiser on Christmas Eve. Oh, John Madden did, yeah. And well, I rode six years with him. I rode his bus with him. Um, it, it was always so much fun, you know, especially... When I first went to CBS, that's when the NFC East was huge. 
So, you know, we were always on that bus going to Philly or Washington, you know, even rode it to Dallas. But yeah, one Christmas Eve, he gave me his bus as a Christmas present. And so I got 25 of my girlfriends and we all went around New York City on the Madden Cruiser because he used to live in Dakota where John Lennon was shot. Yeah, yeah. He lived yeah. there. So we all got on and, um, you know, the big joke John said, we were all young in our 20s. You know, if you couldn't get lucky riding around in the Madden Cruiser on Christmas Eve, so like every bar we'd stop at, we'd lose three more girls because, of course, all the guys would come out to have their picture taken in the Madden Cruiser. And then by the time we got back to the Dakota, it was like me and the drivers. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a really good Christmas Eve. <laughs> That's cool. And uh, well, just John Madden, I always found that fascinating growing up. He, so he never flew at all between the games. It's, what if he had a game in San Francisco one week, another game in like the Giants in New York? How do he, he, he must have made it, I guess, huh? In, like one week? Well, um, people always forget this, that when he was the coach of the Raiders, of course he flew. Yeah. Because they yeah. would go by charter. So no, it wasn't until after he was not coaching with the Raiders, it was when he had to sit in the seat and put the seatbelt. He actually had claustrophobia. Yeah, that's right. I mean, he, he didn't like flying, but mostly it was claustrophobia. And when he flew with the Raiders, he could get up and walk around, go talk to Stabler, go talk to Hendricks. <laughs> but, um, you know, when he, once he went with seat, well, he went by train. I took the train with him for a couple of years. Okay. Um, he used to go by train, and he always said, you can't let him buy you anything to drink. Because then they'll sit with you and they'll nurse the beer. <laughs> nurse it for a couple states, huh? <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, we took the, um, I took once the Lakeshore Limited that went to Chicago and then we took another one on to Seattle. Yeah, yeah. And he would, no one, he liked the food. He liked the train food. I just always found that amazing. You do a game like for CBS in San Francisco and you might have to go to New York the next week. And that's quite a journey. I think I, that's amazing. Yeah, but you can cross the country. He, had, he always had two drivers, so somebody was always driving, and then he could sleep, and we would watch a lot of film. Boy, I can diagram that counter tray. <laughs> he would, we would watch a lot of film, you know, and he'd look out the window, and he always said you shouldn't run for president of this country unless you've crossed it by bus or car, you know, or hitchhiked or bicycle, because... You know, most people in this country just go to Chicago, San Francisco, L.A., New York, Austin. Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. I remember reading that in your book. It, it, you're right. You get, if you're going to represent the country, you should probably see the country. <laughs> that's right. You should go meet Sister Jean. That's right. Well, Leslie, that's a great segue. The last minute or so here, too, I just want to get your thoughts on this week's Final Four. Um, the two matchups. What do you think? I know you like Jay Wright a lot in your book. You mentioned him. Just give us your take for this weekend's Final Four. Well, you know, nobody gets it. What is it? Um, um, what is it, you know, from Omaha? Warren Buffett, he offers you, isn't it like $5 million if you get your bracket yeah, right? the perfect bracket, yeah. Perfect, right? And nobody gets out of the first round. <laughs> no, no question. Anyone who says you picked UMBC over Virginia, I just don't believe it. Unless you're a mother, right? I guess if you're a mother, a mother. So you work there. But, okay, you, you just, you did not have Loyola. So, you know, usually chalk gets there, and we have so much chalk, right? We have Villanova and Kansas and Michigan. 
And, you know, I'm not saying any of those has won it. I guess Villanova the most recently? Uh, yeah, Villanova and then Kansas, too, recently. 08, not that far away. Uh, well, 10 years. Uh, so, it, um, you know, Beeline lost to Patino in 13. So, Michigan was there. Um, but, um, you know, I... I really think, I mean, Villanova, don't they lead the country offensively? I mean, they, they score like 85 points a game, but although defense is what what they did against Texas Tech, you know, they really did well defensively. Um, so, you know, I, I mean, yeah, I do. Jay Wright, I mean, he's really earned it. He's done it the right way. You know, Kansas, who wouldn't want Bill Self? And that overtime against Duke was just astonishing. I mean... And then I think that I just read, I think he, I don't know if he knows, he lost Capel. Um, yeah, to Pittsburgh. waited around, right? Krzyzewski, you know, he, it's a little bit like Calhoun. He just never left. He just never left. So um, Capel, I think, took the Pittsburgh job. Um, but, you know, Kansas is great. They've got a great backcourt. So that game is a real, you know, that's really a worthy game. Um, I'm going to take Loyola over Michigan. Wow. Aren't they Jesuit? Is BC, uh, aren't yes. They Jesuit? Yes, the Jesuit connection, yes. Yeah, okay. So I, I got to take Loyola. Matter of fact, I just ordered my husband. I hope he doesn't hear this podcast. Do you know you can buy Sister Jean socks? <laughs> no, I didn't know that. Jeez. Yes. <laughs> Better get here by Saturday because I'm not sure they're going to make it to the final. But well, I'm, I'm going to pick them. I'm going to pick it to Villanova. What, what is Villanova? By the way, oh, uh, I'm gonna get in trouble. I don't. Uh, is it? No, Dem- we should know. Dominican. Are they some kind of brothers. Is it Dominican? I'm not positive on that. Maybe Dominican, because they're not. What Providence is Franciscan. Franciscan, right? yeah, yeah, yes. Right. So uh, I'm gonna pick Loyola and Villanova. Okay. Don't call me next when it's gonna be Kansas and Michigan. <laughs> and do you have a finals prediction here? Can we get a? a not to put you on the spot, but uh, a national champion. Oh. I just want to see that. Uh, and you know what? My favorite song, my favorite song of all time is um, The Ball is Tipped and There You Are. Oh, one Shining Moment. Yes, One Shining Moment, which um, <laughs> was a friend of Armin Katayan's who brought it to CBS. But it's just the most beautiful. I defy anybody not to get emotional when that confetti's coming down and they start playing The Ball is Tipped. Yes, it's a really, you know, you're right. I remember reading in your book how you said March Madness is really a spring, re, you know, renewal for the entire country. And, and you're right. That song kind of leads right into the Masters, and then we're off and running for the springtime here yeah, in America. Yes, and then that's right before uh, the Kentucky Derby. So it really is. It's a spring, spring starts to bloom, I think, when that confetti comes down. Well, Leslie, last question for me here, and thank you again for joining us. Uh, just try to tell people what you're up to now, your your life. I know uh, We Need to Talk show is on CBS Sports Network. You're involved with that. Just give us a glimpse into your, your day-to-day life. Uh, thanks for asking, Mike. Yeah, I've, I've finally stopped. I mean, I love Tracy Wolfson. We have great women at CBS. Dana Jacobson, she did a great job the other night with Leonard Hamilton and um, Allie LaForce. I've, you know, I did whatever, 30 Final Fours, 34 Final Fours. And I, I do features now. So how about this? I did one um, a couple months ago down here in Miami. The worst part of Miami, if any of you ever come down here, Liberty City, Overton, there's some really, really tough, you know, as tough as Roxbury or Southie, really tough places here. And um, the head football coach is a woman. Oh, geez. Okay. Wow. How about that? 
How about that? And so we did the interview in the real crummy gym, you know, to pull out bleachers and, um, you know, like a rope for the basket, for the basketball. And she had sunglasses on. And I said, you know, Coach B, it doesn't really look that great on network television to be wearing sunglasses. And she said to me, no sunglasses, no interview. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. So don't hit me. <laughs> she got her point across. <laughs> yeah, 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 so... I mean, that's pretty amazing, though. I mean, that's how far, you know, that we've come. And you saw those kids from Parkland talk. I mean, uh, I don't know. This next, these next generations, I think they're really, they, they know how to get it done. And then, of course, your book is available Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Uh, sometimes you have to cross when it says don't walk, Leslie Visser. So, you know, t- tell us how that, was that a, how it's going and your, your whole reaction to that book. Yeah, I've been on a lot. I mean, I've been on CBS. I've been on Megyn Kelly. I did 30 interviews uh, because I was the only woman to present the Lombardi Trophy. Um, I was on a lot of interviews, and it was in Minneapolis, which is where I presented it to the Redskins when they beat Buffalo. Most people remember it for Thurman Munson, uh, or not Thurman Munson, uh, Thurman Thomas losing his helmet, but... um, I remember it for presenting the Lombardi Trophy. There you go. And, of course, I mentioned earlier, member of the Football Hall of Fame, first female winner of the 2006 Pete Rizal Award. And there's so many firsts for you, Leslie, too. So we thank you. Again, this is your first time on the Lights, Camera, Sports podcast. So thank you so much for the time. Really appreciate it. It was really good to catch up with a BC alum and kind of recap your, your whole life and career here on the podcast. No, thank you so much, Mike. It'll be my first time, but not my last. <laughs> right. Thank you again, Liz. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. That's awesome. Chestnut Hill Technologies is a leading technology integration and cybersecurity consulting firm based in the Boston area and owned by BC alum. CHT provides world-class strategy and consulting to Fortune 500 and mid-cap firms throughout New England and nationally, including State Street Bank, Amaj Pharma, and Intel Corporation. Check them out at chestnuthilltechnologies.com. That's chestnuthilltechnologies.com. At Stone Love and Pizza, their mission is simple, to offer the most creative selection of hand-tossed, all-natural pizza in the Neapolitan tradition. Their pizzas are cooked in a stone-fired brick oven directly on the stone to lock in the flavor. Stone Love and Pizza uses all-natural products. In other words, their dough, sauce, and cheese contain no additives, preservatives, or weird chemicals of any kind. Come visit one of Stone Lovin's three locations, including the newest location at 1649 Beacon Street in Newton. Go Eagles! Well, thanks so much to Leslie Visser for joining us here on the Lights Camera Sports Podcast, presented by Chestnut Hill Technology. I'd like to remind everybody, if you're a BC football fan, you need to be a part of the BC Football Gridiron Club. Just go to bcfootballgridiron.com to sign up and get more details. All right, we'll see you again next week, everybody. I'd like to remind everyone, though, if you want to advertise on the podcast, just go to Lights Camera Sports uh, Ads at gmail.com. That's Lights Camera Sports Ads at gmail.com. All right, we'll see you again next week, everybody. 